Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes neuroscientist and psychologist Dr. James Cohn to the show for part one of their conversation on his social baseline model. Part two will be released on October 12th. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Shaddock. Well, it is with great enthusiasm that I introduce our guest for today, who is Dr. James Cohn. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Cohn. He is professor of psychology and director of the Virginia Effective Neuroscience Laboratory at the University of Virginia. He has consulted with clinicians, businesses, and researchers working with groups as diverse as the Oregon Social Learning Center, the Anna Freud Center, and the Kurt Lewin Institute, as well as the Community of Democracies. He has authored more than 80 peer-reviewed articles, and his work has been covered in Science, Nature, and the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, NPR, the Today Show, and other major media outlets. He has earned many awards for his science scientific research. What some of you will recognize him related to is social baseline theory and the social baseline model, as it has some overlap with attachment theory and also some differences, which he will be speaking with us about today. I first heard Dr. Cohn speak um, several years ago. I lose track of time, maybe five years ago in New York City at the International Conference of Attachment Studies. And I had read some of his material prior to that, but when I heard his presentation, I was just completely enamored with with what he is studying and what he is sharing. Uh, Perhaps one of his most famous experiments relates to holding hands with someone while something potentially scary happens to you and the impact of that. And we'll be talking about all of that with him. So stay tuned. Dr. Cohn will be coming right up. So Dr. Cohn, thank you so much for being with us today on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so I I first heard you speak at the big attachment conference that the Steels hosted in New York City. That was very exciting. I had read your work, but had not actually heard you speak anywhere. So that was really wonderful. And and at that moment, I thought, oh, gosh, I hope I can talk to you more at some point. So I'm especially excited. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I shared with listeners before you joined us a bit of your academic background and, and the many papers you've written and your social baseline and and what that's about a little bit, but more your formal biography, I'd like to hear, and I'm sure listeners would like to hear, how did you more informally get to this? Like, how did this become your particular area of interest? I mean, I I started 
research in earnest about 30 years ago in the laboratory of John Gottman at the University of Washington in Seattle. Oh, and it, that's funny because we were just talking about a background in mathematics and he does have a background in mathematics. He certainly does, yeah. And he was real influ influential uh, for me in that way. And in fact, I almost was a major in math um, mm -hmm. at the University of Washington, but I decided to major in psychology because it was, it was so much easier. Yeah. Well, as I was rereading, re as I was rereading your work, I'm like, okay, this this guy really does not think like the typical psychologist. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe I, I I was sort of joking. I, in fact, um, psychology is much harder than math, but yes. the way that it's taught and the way that it's evaluated is is a lot easier. There's a different culture of of you know how we how we pursue it, but the actual questions that we pursue are just just orders of magnitude more complicated than anything that's going on in math right now. Yes, yes, yes. So you were in Gottman's lab, you know, yeah. studying there. I was in Gottman's and lab, and um, then he hired me after I graduated to run his his research empire for about three years. Mm -hmm. and that was a deep dive into all kinds of researchy kinds of ways of thinking and ways of doing things. But at the time, I really wanted to go to graduate school to learn more about the brain and neuroscience. Yes. This was in the, the mid-1990s, and functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, was just getting started. And got about it at about the same time. He learned about it first, and he came and told me about it because we were always scheming about something <laughs> to do. Yes. And, and the original plan was to go to graduate school with him at the University of Washington, him and Neil Jacobson. You remember Neil Jacobson? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I got in to work with them, but, you know, they didn't have any brain research going on like I wanted to do. They didn't have EEG studies and fMRI studies. And so I wound up taking a chance and going to the University of Arizona to work with a guy named John Allen, who was, was not well-known. <laughs> not like the Gottmans. And um, nobody could believe it, but I really just, you know, I think, and I like to tell the story because I think there's some pedagogical value in, you know, if you have a gut feeling about what you want to study, you should pursue that. Mm -hmm. I did, I don't regret it at all. I went to the University of Arizona uh, which was like the 35th ranked clinical psych program in the country after I could have gone to Washington, which was the number one ranked clinical program in the country. And it wound up being absolutely the right decision. So while I was at Arizona, I really took a deep, a, another deep dive, a very big change into neuroscience, particularly into the, the neuroscience of the prefrontal cortex yes. and how it's involved in the regulation of emotion and motivation and personality and risk for depression, a lot of these kinds of things. After that, I went to do a postdoc at the University of Wisconsin with Richie Davidson, who you might, might have heard of. He's a, he does a lot of neural stuff with emotion and emotion regulation, and he works a lot with monks and the Dalai Lama. While I was there, I started thinking, well, I know enough about the brain now. My first love was always relationships. I really just fell in love with that working with Gottman. He was an intoxicating mentor. 
He taught me everything from, you know, how to, how to, the, the mathematics of marriage to how to bake a Thanksgiving turkey. <laughs> and I'll always be grateful for that. So I was thinking, I really want to merge some of the stuff I had been working on with Gottman and the brain stuff I'd been working on with John Allen and Richie Davidson, but it wasn't obvious how to do it. I'd also, I, in my clinical work, I got a clinical PhD and in my internship, I'd started working with World War II era vets who were having late onset PTSD. And at that time, I worked with a guy who had a harrowing, just absolutely harrowing story, horrible story. Many of them do. But I didn't learn about that story for a long time because he just wouldn't tell me. He wouldn't engage in any of the exposure therapy. I could barely get him to do, um, you know, uh, diaphragmatic breathing. He just wouldn't, wouldn't engage with me. Mm -hmm. um, and at one point he asked if his wife could come in with him. And I said, sure. I don't have any problem with that. And he brought her in and she sat there with him and he would sit there and be weepy and silent. And then she would reach over and grab his hand and he would, you know, take a deep breath and then he would start to talk. And he didn't become less emotional while she was holding his hand. He became more emotional. He would weep openly and tell these, these terrifying stories of things that he had experienced during World War II in uh, Germany and Poland. And I thought, gosh, I want to know what's going on there. What is she doing? What is, what is happening that with the touch of her hand that mm -hmm. is changing what he's capable of? And all of this was in my mind when I designed a study uh, where I, I put couples into the lab. I put one of them in the brain scanner and put them under threat of electric shock. <laughs> Which Listen is up, everybody, because if you don't know about this, this is a very famous experiment. Should I call it an experiment? Yeah, it was okay. absolutely an experiment. It was a true okay. experiment. Okay, go ahead. And, um, we we um we while they were repeatedly put under threat of electric shock they, they weren't shocked very often but they were shocked from time to time because we had to make it credible if we wanted to know how the brain was being regulated by hand holding yes. we had to upset the brain yes um so how long was it from when you saw this client to when you began research with this experiment was it like a really long time you just always held that in the back of your mind about a year. About okay a year. not real long then no and i had spent that year uh training getting trained in fmri okay so before i went to work with davidson i hadn't done any fmri Okay. I had been doing EEG with John Allen and he was a tremendously gifted mentor and he trained me very well. But then I wanted to branch out and do some of this fMRI work. Okay. So this handholding study was the very first fMRI study I ever did. Um, and I was super nervous about it because, um, cause it was my first one. Um, and in fact, we found things. Well, so the design again was you're in the scanner, you're facing the shock over and over again, either alone while holding your romantic partner's hand or while holding the hand of a stranger that you've never met before. And we had a really strong hypothesis based on what we knew at the time about emotion regulation. And that hypothesis was that um, emotion regulation 
stop me if I get too technical, uh, was mediated through the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is how you understand time, how you ruminate about past experiences that you don't want to have again or that you do want to have again, mm -hmm. how you plan for the future with contingencies, right? and how you hold things in working memory. All of this is done with the prefrontal cortex. And so um, as far as I knew, as far as anyone knew, this was the, the way to regulate emotion. Mm -hmm. So the hypothesis was that when a romantic partner was holding your hand, the hand would activate regulatory circuits in the prefrontal cortex that would then downregulate emotional activity in subcortical systems of the mm -hmm. brain. This was a slam dunk. I knew this was going to be true. I knew that I was going to be the first to document the the neural mechanisms of social support, and I was going to wind up in Science Magazine and be super famous. It didn't work out that way because um, I was completely 100%, 180 degrees wrong about the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. um, when, per and perhaps that was even a more important finding. It took me a long time to realize that that was um, the best thing that ever happened to me in my whole career. It, for I, and literally, I went years thinking I was I had done something just stupidly wrong. Oh, that's I awful! Had, yeah, because it was my first fMRI study, and because my hypothesis didn't just get disconfirmed, it was like it was completely the opposite of what we actually observed. And I had no, there was no literature at the time to help me figure out what might be going on. It was our, a brand new discovery. Our listeners, by the end of this podcast, are going to hear some groundbreaking information about this unexpected outcome. So when I got to the University of Virginia, I had another very lucky uh, experience. I met a colleague here named Dennis Prophet. We call him Denny. Denny Prophet. Uh-huh. And uh, Denny... Um, had at the time no interest, zero interest in relationships. He was a, he is, he's retired just recently, but he is a cognitive psychologist who studies visual perception. How could he have anything to do with what I'm doing? Well, um, it turns out I, I was giving a talk about my handholding study as a new freshly minted professor just arrived at UVA super jittery and nervous. And one of the things I had gotten, I had started doing is getting into the habit of describing my study as kind of a failure. I had gotten to the point where I was sort of apologizing for the unclarity of the results of my handholding study because it didn't make any sense. And we're going to have to try and go back to the beginning and see why we didn't get, why we got this weird prefrontal result. You know, a lot of scientists do this. When they get a result that they're not expecting, they're really sheepish about it. It feels like you're, um, you know, you're going out to dance and you tripped in front of everybody. Mm. Um, it, there's some real cachet in showing that you were so smart that your hypothesis was right. And, 
anyway, Denny comes up to me after the talk and he says, have you ever considered that um, there is no mechanism for the handholding effect? And I looked at him like, I mean, he might as well have had gremlins crawling out of his ears. I didn't know what he was talking. How could you have no mechanism? That's not possible. As far as I thought at the time, that's magic. That's like being a magician and pulling a rabbit out of your hat. You have to have a mechanism. There's something has to change in the brain when you're holding hands to decrease that affective response. Otherwise, it's just God, right? What is going on here? Mm -hmm. And he says, no, 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 no. You're thinking about this wrong. Oh. He said, I noticed, I noticed that in your description of your design, you kept calling the alone condition the baseline recording. And he said, what if that's really the experimental condition and the handholding is the baseline? <laughs> and that like turned everything around. It turned everything around. It turned everything upside down for me. I couldn't. So people can't see, but I'm like getting so excited. So I'm taking off my jacket. <laughs> because the, is... um, I, it was, it was, it's not an exaggeration to say that for me, at least for my little brain, it was a paradigm shift. Yes. And I'd been studying couples for more than a decade by me. It just hadn't occurred to me because I was so used to thinking, as you said, like a psychologist. You, when, when there's no sensory input coming in, that has to be the baseline reading. And then you add sensory input later in some experimental manipulation, and that's your experimental condition. Right. But the brain, Denny suggested might not work that way. And the reason he made that suggestion was that Denny is, in addition to being a cognitive psychologist, he is a behavioral ecologist. So his whole worldview as a scientist is to think of organisms as animals, including humans. Humans are animals. And whenever you think of something as an animal, you have to ask the next question, which is, what is the animal's habitat? And how does the animal, how has the animal adapted itself to that habitat? And he gave me a book. <laughs> and the book was an introductory textbook, a classic called An Introduction to Behavioral Ecology. And I started reading this book. And on every other page, I just, the top of my head just about blew off. Because I started realizing that I needed to become a behavioral ecologist, which is to say, I, if I want to understand my work, I have to always contextualize the human organism in terms of the habitat that it's designed to inhabit. So then you have to ask, what is the human habitat? And I went on a literature search. What is the human habitat? And boy, let me tell you, that liter literature search was disappointing because nobody knows. Nobody knows. Now, even biologists, behavioral ecologists, are used to thinking of habitats as terrestrial environments. Right. So, so salamanders need a cool, dark, you know, damp space under a rock before they forage out a little bit here and there carefully to, to hunt for food. And if they don't have that, they'll die. That's their habitat. 
Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, polar bears need the Arctic uh, tundra to survive. That's their habitat. But if you look at humans, you realize very quickly that we're everywhere. Mm-hmm. We live on, there are humans that live almost entirely on nothing but whale blubber. There are humans that live almost entirely on unrefined grains. The next time you're out foraging around Amazon in the diet book selection, and you're like, should I eat keto? Should I eat vegan? Should I eat you know, Whole30? Um, take it from me, you can eat any of those things. And it will not make nearly as much difference as you think, because it's not a major part of our habitat. Our habitat is so flexible, we can live at very uh, high elevation where the oxygen is thin, we can live at sea level, we can live in very cold climates, very hot climates. Karen, we've walked on the moon and we may be going to Mars. What is the human habitat? And the more I started trying to triangulate this question, given all that we know about where humans are, the only thing that remained constant was the presence of other humans. So this required a radical rethinking of what habitat is. Yes. I love one of your quotes about this. This is, we adapt not so much to terrain as we do to each other. That's right. And we have done that over phylogeny and ontogeny, which is to mean over evolutionary time and during our own development in our own lifetimes. Over evolutionary time, we've developed all this machinery. We have white sclera. The whites of our eyes are there because our pupils now work for each other like little pointer fingers right on our faces. How convenient. (laughs) We um, have... We sing, we dance together, we have rituals, we, um, we are very uh, intimately yoked to each other uh, in terms of communication. We experience what B.F. Skinner used to call uh, unconditional reinforcement from just being each other in each other's presence. Mm-hmm. We experience unconditional reinforcement from cooperating. Mm -hmm. from engaging in things that we call joint attention. So I point in an object, you look at that object. It seems hard to believe, but that is extremely rare in the animal kingdom on the whole planet Earth. Finger pointing is such fascinating. Imagine, Imagine I am walking down the street with you, Karen, and I say, I'm telling you about how my bike was just stolen. Uh huh. And then I I sort of swat you on the shoulder and we stop walking and I point at a bicycle. Yes. All of a sudden I've communicated a a series of sophisticated messages that that would confound the next smartest creature on earth with a single finger point. Right. We are designed that way. We are designed to be able to communicate. We share goals. And uh, when we share a goal, we link up in cooperative units that are unstoppable. Our social apparatus, our ability to understand and communicate is our habitat. And as I've 
looked at this more and thought about this more, it's become very obvious that it's not just our habitat. It's the habitat of the domesticated dog. That's the nice version. Mm-hmm. It's also the habitat of COVID-19, which is part of why COVID-19 has been so devastating. Yes. Because it wants us to do all of the things that we do naturally. That's how it lives. And the only way to fight it is to live unnaturally. And that's very painful. Wow, that's a fascinating way to think about that. Yeah. So when you think about, in, in, in behavioral ecology, when you talk about a critter's habitat mm-hmm. and all of the, the sort of qualities of that habitat, you talk about the baseline that the habitat that the, the habitat affords or the baseline physiological state that the critter is designed for. Yes. And, and you start referring to that baseline as a reference point to stressors and challenges and other adaptations that the animal might engage in. So that led us to thinking of the social baseline uh, right away. But it really, it, it's almost poetic how it started before that, because Denny said, your baseline condition in your fMRI experiment is the handholding condition. So we had a basic experimental reason and a theoretical behavioral ecological reason to call it a social baseline. And that has expanded as we've learned more about how humans do it, how humans create that habitat and that baseline into social baseline theory, because it's really, it now includes how we manage our bioenergetic resources, literally the glucose in our blood, how we manage uh, oxygen levels in our uh, um, uh, organs, the organs of our body, how we move blood around in our brain, um, and our health, our well-being, all of this is in reference to that, that social baseline. Our, our sense of self and how we create a sense of self, what our sense of self is constituted of, mm-hmm. it's all derived from this social habitat. Oh, Dr. Cohen, this is all so fascinating. And listeners, we are going to be continuing this conversation. I want to talk so much more about your model and, and some of the, even some of the, the ways that you talk about um, risk distribution and load sharing. I'm sure people are going to be like, what? How could that relate to relationships? Yeah. Excited to talk about all that. So everybody, please join us next week as I continue the discussion with Dr. Cohn about social baseline theory and the social baseline model. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.